This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with us and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. This episode isn't really about hunting, fishing, or foraging. It's about public lands. It's about the threats that our public lands face and protecting them so that we can continue to use them for hunting, fishing, and foraging, or whatever else we do on them. It's about sitting down and having a conversation that you might not agree upon, but find common ground. I'm not going to abandon my beliefs, and I wouldn't ask someone to abandon theirs either. But in this case, it doesn't matter what political party one supports, because we're all hunters, anglers, and foragers. And we can make our voice heard about the one topic we can agree upon, our public lands and waters. We need to stop trying to take opportunities away from other outdoorsmen and women for our own selfish reasons. We should all try and be an ambassador, welcome others, be willing to teach, and share the great resources that we have. I want to know that my children and yours will have the same opportunities that you and I have. And with that being said, here's the episode. Okay, so I'm sitting here and I've got Land Tawny of BHA. So Land, I'm just going to ask you, let you introduce yourself. Oh man, I get to introduce myself. Uh, so Land Tawny, President and CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Uh, fifth generation of Montana and been involved in conservation for about 20 years. Um, got two young kids, uh, 11 and eight, uh, Sydney and Colin, and we spend as much time up time outside as we can though. Uh, this job, you would think that I spend a lot more time outside, but it's, uh, it's more, you know, I got computer fingers and, uh, and uh, telephone ear most of the time. So, but you know, love working for BHA and, um, you know, couldn't be happier about kind of who we are as an organization and where, you know, how we've grown in the last seven years. So let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about how you kind of got started with BHA because you weren't there at the start, but it's definitely grown since you've been there. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So hopefully all your listeners and, and you in particular have been around a campfire late at night and tried to solve the world's problems. Um, and that's how BHA started in 2004 is around a campfire in Oregon. And basically those folks looked at the playing field of the elk foundations, the mule deer foundations, the ducks unlimited, the pheasants forever, all doing amazing work. Um, but nobody was fo- focused on public lands and waters. And so that's really 
the impetus of the organization. Uh, I came on as a, as a member early on just because I had some friends that were around that campfire, uh, Mike Beagle in particular. And uh, so I came on as a member, always kind of looked at the organization. Um, and then when I came on seven years ago, I've been working for National Wildlife Federation, been working for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, and really saw BHA and all the potential that it had. So that was the impetus for me to kind of you know, jump in with both feet. And I'm super stoked that uh, I did do that. And when I first started, I was the first full-time staff. Uh, we had about a thousand members and, you know, now fast forward to 2020, uh, we've got over 40,000 members, 31 staff chapters in 45 States, two Canadian provinces, one territory, and the growth continues to kind of be exponential. And, and to me, it's really because of what we represent, you know, and it's everybody, no matter if you have you know a lot of money, it doesn't matter you know if your parents are connected to a, a certain family or what your background is. We all are on the same playing field on public lands, and so what we try to do every single day at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is make sure you have access to those public lands and waters, and then the outstanding fish and wildlife habitat when you get there. And uh, so far, you know, I think we've uh, done a good job both playing in the space of kind of defense and offense, and you know that's. You know, all the way from projects, little teeny projects on the ground, which when I say little teeny, you know, these are cleanups. You know, I think we picked up over 600 bags of uh, trash last September uh, to like riparian zone kind of fencing to picking up uh, uh, bob wire to like regional stuff with, uh, I would say, fishing game commissions, um, state legislatures, provincial legislatures, then all the way up to Washington, D.C. Um, really to like make our voices heard. And I was actually in Washington, D.C. last week. I'm testifying in front of the House Natural Resources Committee around a uh, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness uh, up in northern Minnesota, and that's so that gives you the gamut of kind of on the ground projects all the way up to DC. So I want to talk more about that. Before we do, I kind of want to talk about your name. Your parents were obviously pretty well involved <laughs> in the outdoors as well, and I mean, did that play a part in it when they named you or what? Um. All right, so named uh, after Land Lindberg, and Land Lindberg uh, lives in the Blackfoot Valley, which is just outside of Missoula. So that's really where I got my name, was being named after him. But again, my parents were the first full-time conservation lobbyists at the state legislature here in Montana. My dad was the first lawyer for the Elk Foundation. Um, he did a lot of conservation easement work in the state. And then my mom today still sits on the Cinnabar Foundation, which is the number one grantor, I guess state-based grantor here in Montana, the kind of conservation issues. So uh, land kind of fit. I will tell you that I hated my name uh, when I was younger. Uh, I got my first fist fight when I was in fifth grade. <laughs> I lost that fist fight. Uh, but everybody knew after that that, you know, if they made fun of me, they might get punched in the nose. And so, um, you know, now that I'm, you know, older and um, uh, more mature and uh, comfortable with my name, you know, it fits for the work that I'm doing um, every day. So, it's uh, it's kind of a weird way to get there, but that's how I was named. No, that's that's pretty awesome, actually. I mean, that you know, from an early age, you didn't even realize it, but you were destined to be on this path, probably, um, and that's pretty cool. So you've got that going for you. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk again. You said you just testified against the natural resource or to the natural resources committee about the uh, boundary waters, and I believe we're talking about the copper mine, right? We are. So, um, that, uh, so the, the boundary waters, you know, Northern Minnesota, 1.1 million acres, most visited wilderness in the country has been since it was established in 1964. There is a copper sulfide mine, uh, that is proposed a quarter mile South of the, uh, of the wilderness. Uh, I've been to that site and all that water flows North there, right? Because where the ridge is. And so that water flows North into the boundary waters and then ultimately up into the Hudson Bay. And as it's in Hudson Bay, um, and as it all flows north there, like one little spill is going to, you know, defile basically this clean water and the opportunities that you have in the boundary waters. And, you know, we're not against mining. Um, but we're definitely against the mining here or a mine here. And that's really what we testified about in Congress. And you know, I had the good fortune to not only represent the you know, 1600 plus members that we have in Minnesota, but also the, the fish, the fowl and the wildlife of those boundary waters that can't speak for themselves. That's true. That's that's one thing that I mean, and I, I think I've even heard you say it, that it's not uh, 
if it ever did have a spill or a leak, it's a matter of when because there hasn't been historically any any mining site that hasn't had a spill of something at some point in time. Yeah, this type of mining in particular, you know, I think that copper sulfide mining, and I'm not going to, I want to get it too much into the details, but when you uh, bring that sulfur kind of to the surface, it combines with air and water and turns, like, turns that into acid mine drainage. And, you know, you don't get that um, from iron mining, you know, iron rust instead of uh, causing these uh, kind of chemicals. And so copper sulfide mining in particular is bad, and there has never been a copper sulfide mine that hasn't leached. And so it's not, like you said, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And do we really want to risk this amazing resource that really Roosevelt first understood as an important uh, resource when he established the Superior National Forest back in 1909? And then, you know, it was one of the first wilderness designated in 1964 after the Wilderness Act. And, you know, the I guess the outdoor recreation and just kind of the, the ethos that the that the boundary waters are there's so much a part of the you know minnesota culture and i would hate to lose that and not only for myself but for everybody else right i think that's important so let's talk about some more of the issues that we're currently facing as bha members and outdoorsmen and, and anglers as well there, there's a lot of things there i would say um and i'll talk about like you know probably most current um and threats and then you know opportunities and some wins that we've had um, you know, I think there's always ever present this idea that there's people that want to sell or and or and or transfer our public lands. And, you know, this has been going on since Roosevelt first established the first national kind of lands um, you know, or public lands, I would say, uh, you know, back in the early 1900s. Um, but there's been those that want to you know take them for themselves or that they want to uh, defile them. And so, you know, a couple of years ago, Mr. Chaffetz from uh, Utah proposed a bill that was going to sell three million acres. You know, the sportsman's community, the outdoor community got together and they said, hell no, and pushed back really hard on that. And you would think that, you know, his colleagues would get the would get the message. Well, Mr. Chaffetz is from Utah. And just this last summer, uh, Senator Lee, um, who is you know, a senator from Utah, came out and said, you know, this is going to be a long fight, but we will dispose of these public lands. And so he is very committed to it. And so we're always going to be fighting that kind of stuff, I think that this last push um, against that quieted a little bit, but you know, it only really takes one time to lose public lands and you never really get it back. Um, I'll talk in, here in a minute about some ways to get that back. Uh, but I think that's a major one facing us. You know, I think that clean water, you know, back in the 1960s when rivers were on fire and Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring and kind of there was this like environmental awakening for the entire country. Which sportsmen, you know, they're like, welcome to the party. You know, we've been caring about the environment and conservation for, uh, you know, almost 100 years. But during that time, uh, you had the Clean Air and Clean Water Act that were put into place. And the Clean Air, Clean Air and Clean Water Act, you know, bipartisanly supported. It was signed into law by President Nixon. And so that has kind of been, you know, how we've moved forward on how we're going to, you know, uh, protect our, our water and our air. And just recently, the Trump administration um, came had a new inter interpretation, I guess, um, of uh, what the Clean Water Act protects, and they took away protections for 50% of our wetlands. And so when I think about those wetlands, those are the prairie potholes in particular that are in eastern Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, these places that are the duck factory of the world, um, those are now susceptible to not only development, but also pollution, um, and have way less uh, requirements on what happens with those clean like, especially temporary wetlands, which are only really wet in the spring. So that's super frustrating. Uh, it's one that we won't get back in the near term, but I think that pendulum will swing back at some point just because clean air and clean water are such universal um, ideals. Uh, the president came out with his budget uh, yesterday um, for the fiscal year 2020. I have not looked at it in detail yet, um, but from folks I've talked to Washington, D.C., just um, on a kind of tertiary level, it's really very similar to what he's done before. Which are draconian cuts to uh, programs we care about. Uh, one is the Land and Water Conservation Fund. You know, last time you zeroed that out. Um, and there's cuts to just fish and wildlife agencies, cuts to Forest Service, cut to the Bureau of Land Management, all these agencies that are, you know, in charge of kind of uh, being the stewards of our public lands and public waters. Their, their budgets are being cut. And this is after, you know, decades of those budgets being cut before and so you know these are some of our most treasured landscapes i think you know they 
are the cornerstone of our $887 billion economy. And so, you know, cuts to them do not make sense at all. So, uh, so those are some, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, let's circle back to the whole transfer of public lands thing. Um, I, it's one of those things that's kind of difficult for me because I love my public lands. I love hunting them. I've been out West and just one trip out West was enough to solidify the fact that I know they're there. They need to be protected. They need to be reserved for all. But at the same time, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because it's one of those things that the government mismanages just about everything they put their hands on. And I get that. But it's already been established. So it's kind of like they're already there. We need to figure out how to make it work and to keep it all in a balance. And I think that's pretty hard. I don't care what political party it is, whether it's you know one party's cutting, another one says they're for it, whatever. It's one of those things where it's almost like, no matter what, and I think that's really cool where BHA kind of comes in is because we need to band together and really let them know, hey, they're here. We just need to figure it out. You know what I mean? Is it? I mean, do you get what I'm getting at there? Or? I totally do. And I think, you know, like, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like, I think, like you said, like a lot of things that the government does, um, you know, maybe we don't necessarily think are done the right way. You know, I will say that, you know, we utilize government programs every single day, whether that's on our public lands or it's elsewhere. And without those things, um, we'd be a much different country and that we wouldn't probably be having this conversation. Um, that said, that we can work all the time to try to improve. I talked a little bit about the funding. You know, that's something that the president proposes his budget, but it's ultimately Congress that decides on what that funding looks like. And so, you know, working all across the country to try to, you know, increase funding for the programs that we care about. I think getting involved at the resource management plan level, the travel management plan level on these big swaths of public land is super important. And what I will say is that, you know, Nobody gets exactly what they want on their public lands, and that's actually a good thing. Uh, you know, the public land managers have one of the toughest jobs in the world is to try to figure out how they balance all different types of recreation. So that's a headache in itself when you think about horses and mountain bikes, uh, people on foot, motorized use, like trying to figure out on a landscape where all that can happen and most of the time be separated in time and place. Uh, is a hard one, but then you think about, then you have outdoor recreation, you have grazing, you have mineral development, you have watershed protection. That's a whole nother level that they're trying to look at all the time. And so to me, they have a huge hard job. Now, is it perfect? Absolutely not. Um, but, you know, it's not time to, I think, throw that baby out with the bathwater. It's time to double down on and how we, again, increase budgets and increase engagement, I think, in that process. Um, but, you know, this idea of selling them, you know, we'll never get those back. Um, there's, then there's kind of the next level is like, well, let's transfer them to the states. And I can like, okay, um, there's some states that are doing a really good job, especially when they're managing their wildlife management areas. You know, I'm, I hunt a lot of wildlife management areas, but the majority of state lands are set up for school trusts. And so they're set to make money and make money, period. And when that happens, you know, Fish and Wildlife Habitat doesn't necessarily win in a scenario where you're trying to make money. At the same time, Multiple states, Nevada is probably the worst case scenario, but 90% of the land that they were gifted uh, to Nevada when they became a state, 98% of that is gone now. They only have 2% public land left. And so there's a very big track record, not just in Nevada, but all across the West in particular. If you look at the East, you know, I spent some time in Iowa this last year and they have 2% public land. And when they first started, they had a bunch of public land. And, and so, you know, there's a long track record of states selling that land. And so it's another reason to keep it, I think, managed by the federal government and then owned by all of us. Uh, because as soon as we start to divest that, again, I don't think we ever get it back. No, I agree with that. I mean, I come from a state, I'm here in Illinois, where it's where it's 2% public. And I think maybe 1% of that 2% is actually even huntable. So, I mean, it is very... Yeah finite amount of resources and then of course you've got a little bit of federal land up up in my area and then of course shawnee but that is it i mean that yep. is that is a finite resource that if we lost that we would have absolutely zero we'd be in worse shape than Ab texas <laughs> absolutely but i would also say so we were talking about kind of maybe some of these threats but then on the positive side um last year there was a public lands package that actually passed in march that it was like a 700-page bill, had a lot of protections in there um, for public lands, uh, special landscapes, 
one of the coolest things that was in there was the uh, was the permit reauthorization of the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Land and Water Conservation Fund has been around since 1964. It was established when there was oil and gas drilling happening in the Gulf of Mexico. The foresight of those leaders back then was like, we're taking away from one resource, let's give back to another. And so LWCF is the number one access tool in this country. Um, it's used for fishing access sites. It's used for city parks. It's used for you know, large-scale conservation. And so, again, I'm preparing for this trip. I'm going to Pheasants Fest this week in Minnesota. And I know that was in Illinois last year, I think, wasn't it? Was it just outside of Chicago, I think, um, was uh, I Pheasants Fest last year. Anyways, um, but I'm going through there and, like, within that, looking at what priorities are for Land Water Conservation Fund uh, this year. And they've got, you know, the expansion of a national wildlife refuge up to a million acres. And and so, like, to me, or not, excuse me, a million dollars, so that's going to be more like about, I don't know how many acres it is. But I know they're looking for a million dollars out of that fund. So that's a positive thing. And, you know, in these times of super by or super partisanship where people seem to be at our throats, you know, you're on, a, on the left side or the right side and fighting all the time. That bill last year passed 92 to 8 in the Senate and 363 to 62 in the House. And they do not vote like that anymore, you know. And, right. and it really shows to me that like kind of public lands and public waters <clears throat> are these places that you can bring people together on. And I thought that was pretty exciting. Um, you know, this administration has expanded access on national wildlife refuges across the country, uh, which is a great thing and something that we have applauded. Um, and so to me, you know, it does feel like there's quite a few threats against our public lands and waters right now, but there's also some some bright spots as well. Yeah, I think that kind of speaks volumes to the fact that either A, there's enough people out there that are making their voice heard and organizations like this help, or it just goes to show you that it's kind of a universal thing to where there's enough people speaking out about their public lands that, you know, the politicians are actually for once following what people are talking about and what they want to be done with them. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, you know, I... I say something all the time, like the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? That's the way democracy works. And, and you know, when we got, you know, Pittman Robertson and the duck snap back in the 20s and 30s, when, you know, the Land and Water Conservation Fund was first established in 64, these clean air, clean water, or the stuff we were just talking about, you know, modern times, like none of that happens in a vacuum, you know? And and those politicians are hearing from people all the time on all sorts of different sides of, of, of an issue and it's really our responsibility to, to make our voices heard and i you can't look at a victory for conservation in this country without there being um, a mass of people behind it you know we know the names of theodore roosevelt the aldo leopolds the rachel carsons but behind them was thousands of people that we don't know the name of that really made that happen and all politics are local and you know picking up that phone and uh making a phone call uh you know finding those people when they're at home on the ground, like all those conversations, they absolutely matter. And I think, you know, to your point is that that's why we've gotten some of these wins as of late. And, you know, public lands and public waters seem to be one that, um, you know, folks from both sides of the aisle can coalesce around because they're hearing so much of the same thing from so many people that they're like, oh, this is one I can be, that I can join my colleagues on. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about, I mean, it's one of those things that it seems, you know, with Pittman-Robertson Act and all those kind of different funds that it's all something that ties back into hunters and the numbers. We keep losing yep. hunters if you look at statistics. And what is BHA and or in general, what should we be doing to try and recruit the next generation and get as many people involved so we can raise funds? It's great. So I would answer that in two ways. I think there's the first piece of just hunters and anglers. I think you're exactly right. You look at those demographics and they're going down and you know, we've had some kind of increases um, in certain places, um, but the old, overall, like we're going to be less of a percentage no matter what, right? Even if our numbers stayed exactly the same as they are right now, overall percentage of the entire population in the United States, it would go down. And, and that's just reality. And so what we're doing at BHA, I think there's a ton of programs uh, for young kids, you know, whether that's, you know, from five to, to I would say, high school age. And so we think those are very successful programs. There's a lot of people doing, you know, stuff within that. And so we have really chosen to concentrate on that kind of 20 to 40 something. Um, there's this crazy word called adult onset hunting, which I hate that term. It sounds like, uh, <laughs> like it's a disease or something. I mean, it's probably yes. a good disease to have. Um, but you know, it's these people that did grow up hunting and fishing, uh, but 
now, you know, there's this big foodie movement. There's a big local floor movement. They're growing their own vegetables or they're buying their own vegetables at the farmer's market. The next step is to kill your own meat. And, you know, that's a, that's a, you know, for us that have grown up with it, that seems like it's super natural. But if you haven't, it's pretty daunting to get into. And so we're really concentrating there and we're starting in college. You know, we have 31 college clubs across the country and we do programs called Hunting for Sustainability where we do kind of a crash course um, in hunter safety as well as uh, hunting techniques. And then majority of the time we either um, are able to kill something depending on the property that we're on um, or we get something from the local uh, DNR or Fish and Wildlife, uh, I guess, service and, you know, butcher um, an animal there, which I think is super cool. That's a huge barrier, you know. I think when people are like, okay, now I shot this, what am I supposed to do with it? So there's the butchering piece. And then after that, they get to eat some and take some home that, you know, the next day. And so... we're doing a lot of those programs, um, and that's just within the colleges. But that exact same idea, then our college, or excuse me, our our chapters around the country are are doing these programs, kind of learn to hunt programs, that again don't have to be just concentrated on the college kids, but it's really focused on that kind of twenty to forty something. And you know, is that again, are we going to stem the tide with that? Probably not. Um, you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that does their their kind of hunter number survey every six years. The last time there was a little bit of a blip up and they looked deeper into those numbers and the numbers uh, really reflected that there was more women that are hunting and fishing. Um, and that there's more of this kind of like, again, like this local war kind of foodie movement. And so we're trying to concentrate in there. So I'd say that's like the first step and something that's very tangible that we're doing. Um, the next one is really, <clears throat> I think it's a couple ways is that, you know, the funding piece is super important. Um, and before I get into the funding, I think I'll talk about the overall like passion and ethos for conservation and you know hunters again for those that know the story you know even prior to theodore roosevelt like they were really the ones that kind of started this conservation ethic in this country and you know throughout the kind of all the winds you know some of which we talked about today and others like hunters have been like kind of the base of of these conservation winds and what i fear is that conservation becomes less of a priority for americans in general and I think it's, you know, the public lands and public waters are right in the middle of that. And so I think it's really important that we as hunters and anglers, um, you know, are obviously recruiting people to our ranks, but also having conversations with those outside of our ranks. And so, you know, those folks that are, you know, mountain biking or kayaking, um, they share a lot of the same ethos we do. You know, they're looking for that adventure, that challenge, kind of that solace that you can really only find out on the woods and waters. And so I think there's some common ground there. And so I think that's like a huge piece of, um, you know, I guess a plea for folks listening to this, but also it's what we're doing at BHA. You know, we've been to the outdoor retailer show uh, the last uh, four years running. I'm um, trying to build relationships with folks there. You know, we work with Patagonia on some issues. I was on a phone call today with folks over at New Belgium, you know, big brewing company. And so we're really trying to look at, you know, folks outside of our ranks. I think that's a super important role for not only BHA to play, but I would think, you know, every hunter to play. Um, and so just kind of finding common ground, I would say. The second piece is that funding piece. And there's all sorts of different kind of funding opportunities. But one in particular, and, you know, you mentioned Pittman Robertson. And for those that don't remember where that come, comes from, it was from 1927. You know, we had some dirty, dirty times. The lid was kind of coming off the prairie. Uh, hunters got together and they said, hey, we'd like to tax ourselves ammunition firearm companies were like ah, that money should go back to conservation and, and so we can perpetuate you know hunting and fishing and, and these animals on the ground and so that's really where Pittman robertson comes from those excise taxes that are paid on ammunition and and uh, firearms go back into conservation and really without that money our state fishing game agencies would not be functional at all um so that's a huge part of the funding and i think something of pride that we should all be proud of the Non-hunting fishing public, while they pay taxes and some of their money, like I think it's like almost $2 goes into like some of the management of our public lands and public waters, they are really not paying in in such a robust way that hunters and anglers are. And so I would love to see something similar to Pittman Robertson that got put on backpacks and hiking boots and optics, um, uh, kayaks, mountain bikes, you know, you name it, kind of stuff that's being used in the woods. And while that wouldn't exempt hunters and anglers, you know, what I just mentioned, we all pretty much use. Um, but it would add more people to the pot, so it would grow that money. But I also think it goes back to that kind of ethos I was talking about earlier. When you have a vested interest in something, when you are told that you are, some of that 
money that you just spent on that $5,000 mountain bike is going into conservation, then you have more of a, I think, understanding of kind of, of your role in that whole thing. And so to me, that's a huge opportunity. And uh, one that, um, that I try to talk about as much as I can is, is really a, a modern day kind of Pittman Robertson for other outdoor gear. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit more because I've heard, you know, different arguments about that. And I don't really have a, too much of an opinion on that because I think any money that's going towards conservation is a good thing. But you hear a lot of people saying, well, that's going to take a bigger piece of our so-called pie away because as hunters, we are the biggest contributors. Therefore, we get the most say in it. And if you start bringing in these kayakers and backpackers and things like that, now all of a sudden they've got a bigger seat at the table. And they're going to start dictating how the land is used more. I think it's a totally valid point, and I don't discredit it. You know, I hear, I hear the argument, and I think it has validity. But you and I were talking about earlier how hunting numbers are declining, which means that our, with those numbers declining, that there's less and less kind of funding that is out there. And again, even if we maintained our numbers and even grew a little bit, we're still percentage-wise overall going to go down in the overall population. And so I would rather have these folks come to the table and come to the table now and have us build relationships than being run over by that train later. And when I say that train, you know, there's more and more people that are getting out into our woods and on our waters. And if we do not try to partner with them, if we do not try to help engage them in the conversation about conservation, then I think we ultimately lose. And so I look at it as this like huge, you know, train that's coming down the train tracks and either we try to get on that train and try to uh, uh trains aren't great because they're on tracks and you can't really steer them but you know <laughs> if we try we try to get on that build relationships and kind of um have influence on that conversation or we get run over and i you know I'm, i for one I don't want to be run over and i don't think anybody hopefully listening to this does and so while i think i totally understand that argument i think it's really short-sighted i think it, it would happen eventually and we'd rather better be on the front end of it yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Like to compound on it a little bit, I see it as one of those things that the, the more active people hear about public lands and a lot of times they're just like, oh yeah, it's there. You know, they don't really think anything of it, but the more people, no matter what they're doing on it, they become a steward of it because they tend to appreciate it more, whether that's foraging, mushroom hunting, you know, anything like that, hiking, they're taking in the beauty of it and they're going to respect it more. So they're going to want to either A, protect it or they want to keep it clean or clean it up. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, I always try to like build my friendships around and build my uh, collaborative efforts here at BHA around the kind of the 80-20 rule, right? Like let's agree on 80% of the stuff. And then that 20% that we probably disagree upon, at least we have that basis to have a conversation now about it, right? And so what you just mentioned of that kind of shared ethos, right? I I feel like we probably would agree on 80% of the stuff. Um, and let's go find and build relationships with them. And then on that 20%, it'll help us have, you know, those tougher conversations. And, um, and I, again, I say that about, you know, friendships I have, I'd say my wife are about 80, my wife and I are probably about 80, 22. And I think that works. Um, and, uh, and so I think we should look at that, you know, kind of with this crowd as well. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. It's one of those things I actually, on, on one of my elk hunts, there was a, a couple that was actually an elderly couple that walked way faster than me and my cousin did when we were out there with our packs on and they went past us and we were still hiking down the trail. We ended up veering off, but their dog must've picked up our scent or something along the way. So they got off trail and, uh, they came back looking for their dog and we started talking. And when they first went by, they kind of gave us, you know, a, a little bit of a, I'll say a scowl or a kind of disgusted look. The fact that we were hunters, we were wearing orange, sure. had rifles, you know, and it's one of those things that, then they started talking and they're like, oh, you know, where are you from? This and that, blah, blah, blah. Just small talk after, you know, I was petting their dog and then um, kind of opened up a window and we started talking about, oh, well, yeah, I'm from Illinois. Oh, yeah, we're from Illinois too, blah, 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 this and that. You know, we moved out west, you know, however many years ago, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we don't really care much for hunting, but oh, you should try up here or start looking over here. This is a pretty good spot. We've seen a lot of elk up there. And it was just really cool that, you know, at first it was one of those things where they were standoffish. They didn't care at all. And now all of a sudden, you know, you open up just small talk, find a little bit of common ground. The fact that we were, we were originally from the same place. And next thing you know, they're, they're talking to you and telling you where to go look for elk. I thought that was pretty interesting. Well, and I, man, I, that's a rad story. And, 
I call that like trailhead diplomacy, right? And I think that like those opportunities to have conversations like that, like that's that's a responsibility of all of us, you know? It only takes a few bad apples to kind of upend that cart, right? And like to me, um, those conversations that you had are super valuable and it reminds me of one. I was uh, out in Washington, D.C. a few years back and uh, we were going to do some duck hunting after like, all our stuff was done in the city. And I brought a gun with me and the shotgun was in a case. It wouldn't fit in the back of the car. This is back when they, from the airport, they're having you share, you know, a, a cab with somebody. And me and this woman got put in the back of this car and the shotgun's in between us in the case. And she is <laughs> physically like repulsed by it. Right. And she was just like against the other side. I mean, she's as far away from me as she probably can. Doesn't want to make eye contact. I see that she's uncomfortable. We start having a conversation and I ask her what she's doing in town and she asked me, and I'm like, well, I work for the National Wildlife Federation. She's like, what? The National Wildlife Federation, and you're a hunter? And I was like, oh, this is going to get better. And so we <laughs> had this awesome conversation, you know. And was she going to become a hunter after that conversation? I don't think so. But did she have a better understanding of, you know, kind of the hunter's role in conservation? I would say yes. And so I think, you know, whether that's your conversation on a trailhead, mine in Washington, D.C., in a cab, or anywhere in between, I think it's important that we're having those conversations. And we do it with uh, civility um and uh and humbleness i would say and so that you know we don't turn people off right no i agree with that so there's one more thing i kind of want to talk about um it's the public lands renewable energy act and bha put out a thing and they you know said which i think is really awesome because they let you know about a lot of different legislation that's going on you can click on the link find just like a lot of other organizations do so you can actually get in contact with your local representative but why did BHA support that? Maybe you can kind of tune me in a little bit better on that because I personally, I do not like the fact that no matter what it is, it's going to litter the landscape, especially when it comes to wind power. I think that is a joke in its developmental stages at this point because A, it's a huge burden on the taxpayers. It's something in my opinion, that we're getting taxed on in order to fund them and put them up. And then you're getting taxed on the fact that when you purchase the energy, it's also you're getting charged again and they're not actually cost effective. Great. So uh, important conversation. I thank you for the question. Um, I'm going to so I'd say a couple of things first. Um, as we talk about like resource development in this country and whether that's mining, whether that's uh, you know, renewable energy, uh, oil and gas, whatever that is, that I think it's it's imperative that sportsmen and women step up to the plate and make sure that those things are done in the most uh, like the most responsible way. So we've had a long history of working on oil and gas development, in particular, on where and when we think that should happen. You know, looking at corridors and trying to stay out of out of wildlife corridors in particular, not, you know, interrupting those migration routes in particular. Um, and, and then trying to figure out ways to minimize the impact on the back end, which a lot of time means, you know, money to pay for, um, uh, restoration. And, and so when you look at, you know, again, whether that's mineral development, oil and gas, or now renewable, like a lot of that is going to happen whether you and I like it or not. And, and so what do we try to do to minimize the impact from that? What do we try to do to um, capitalize on an opportunity for restoration? I think all those things are really what went into that bill. And, you know, we were joined by Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership and Child Limited with that thinking is that this is going to happen. Let's try to make it happen in the least impact to fish and wildlife. Let's try to make this um the least impact to uh, other natural resources like uh, clean, cold water um, and clean air. And then on the very piece, last piece of that is that if it's going to happen, you know, just like the land and water conservation fund, you know, I mentioned that earlier when that oil and gas was being developed out on the Gulf of Mexico, it's like those folks back in 64, they were like, man, we should, we should try to like figure out a way to give back to the resource when we're taken away from another. And so I think that was monetarily and that's really, is really what this bill did. Um, I think just, you know, on the front end, and I think, you know, what I've heard from people, which I totally understand, is that they feel like this facilitates more energy development um, and makes it okay. 
uh, to, I mean, I, again, like big, huge solar um, installations, a big, huge wind installations, they have impact on the ground, no matter what. And whether that's from the immediate stuff or the uh, infrastructure that goes along with that, in terms of wind turbines, you know, their effects on birds, migratory birds in particular is well documented. Yeah. Um, where they put a lot of those wind farms or where they propose to put a lot of them is on the only native prairie that's left because it hasn't been farmed. And so it's on these like ridges that are super important ecologically. And so I think all those things being said, um, I understand that view, but really, really looked at it and was like, how do we try to make it better? It's going to happen. And, and, you know, how do we try to make it the least impactful again to fish and wildlife? And how do we try to make, you know, some opportunities for restoration on the outside? So that's really where we came down on it. I don't think it's definitely black and white, you know, um, I think there's definitely some gray area in there and I, I definitely understand kind of your angst around it and others, uh, but that was a decision we made on that bill. So let's talk about that bill a little bit further in detail then. I mean, is it one of the things to where, uh, I mean, is there going to be any type of input where the, the equipment or the resources actually go, or is it going to be pretty much as seen fit for the development of energy, renewable energy within this country? So every time you're doing a resource management plan, which usually lasts for like 15 or 20 years, there is tons of public comment and input into that piece. And so, you know, we, we, our chapters engage on those resource management plans in particular all over the country, um, you know, when those things come up. And again, they come up every 15 to 20 years. And so within that, then they put priorities in like how oil and gas is going to happen, where mineral development is going to happen, and where renewable energy will happen. So I would say absolutely yes, there'll be input on where these things happen. Um, for where, you know, existing plans are in place, and that is already um, been, you know, approved of like a development kind of area there still is at the project level opportunities to get involved um, and i encourage everybody to do that um, and so i would say that there's you know there's opportunities to be involved and again like part of the passage of trying to pass this bill is really is to put in even more about the the need to be consulting with the fish and wildlife service and the state fish and game agencies on where and when to put these things and that's another layer on top of the federal process that's already there. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. It still kind of concerns me about them, but I guess, I mean, it's one of them things that you're just going to have to learn to fight, fight with it or <clears throat> figure out where it's going to go from there, you know? Well, and um, I think, I mean, before we leave this also, like I bring up that 80, 20, right. And like, you know, I think within that 20%, let's say that you and I disagree upon, we're not that far away, I would say, on this one in particular, right? Um, and and like I'd rather us be eighty percent like agreeing on that, and then have a you know a, a, an intelligent conversation about this other twenty percent, which I think we, we just had. Hopefully, people think that that was intelligent. <laughs> just listen to, um, but like you know, I think that's again that kind of eighty twenty place, and let's figure out places where we can agree and like and go crush that stuff together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. What would you say to somebody if they're thinking about getting involved with BHA? What's a good way to, to get involved or maybe to dip their toe in the water, so to speak, on the whole BHA uh, community? Yeah, you know, I think uh, becoming a member, you know, is, is uh, the, one of the easiest ways to get involved. It's $35. Um, you get our magazine four times a year. You get discounts to like Onyx Maps, SICK, uh, a uh, bunch of other of our corporate partners. And so really, I think you pay for that $35 membership right away just with the discounts if you make a purchase. Um, and with that magazine, you know, it comes out four times a year. It gives you a good idea of kind of who BHA is. Um, and then, you know, if you provide an email address, then we're able to uh, send you emails about either, you know, local events that are coming up, which I think, you know, we do a lot of pint nights Um anywhere from pipe nights to storytelling evenings to um, trivia nights to wild game cook-offs, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a great way to have a conversation with somebody, especially our local leaders, about kind of what they're doing on the ground and like how people can get engaged. So if you give us an email when you become a member, you'll be able to engage that way. Um, if you only you know, if you just kind of want to check us out before you even become a member, you know, you can go on to we, all of our state chapters have Facebook pages. I think our Illinois chapter, I haven't been on it um, this week, so don't quote me on how active it is. But like the Illinois chapter has a, a Facebook page and you can find out at events there and kind of find out what some of the things that they're working on. But I think that's an easy way to get in. Um, and then, you know, 
it really depends after that how much you want to engage. Like, do you want to show up to a cleanup, you know, go pick up some garbage or roll up some barbed wire fence? Do you want to uh, show up at a meeting and give your opinion about X issue? Do you want to make a phone call to your elected official? Um, do you want to be part of, you know, the volunteer leadership of that of that chapter? Like, there's, do you want to go to Washington, D.C.? You know, we did a large fly-in last spring around the Land and Water Conservation Fund and, um, you know, brought 31 people to dc from different states all across the country and so there's many different ways you can get involved but i think the easiest way is uh become a member 35 bucks um and uh or uh going and checking us out on social media all right thanks for that now there's one more thing i want to ask you before we get going here but so yeah. what do you typically use your public lands for and what's like your latest newest interest or fascination with uh whatever it is you're doing out there? Oh, wow, dude. That's a really big question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, oh, man. I, I've i got two young kids right now. Uh, one's 11, one's 8. And so I think the thing that I'm utilizing our public lands most right now is probably around water. And, you know, I think floating rivers, uh, being on lakes, uh, just so accessible for my kids. And, you know, I think I, you know, I talked about the Boundary Waters earlier. Like, that's it's the reason it's most visited is because it's so accessible. So I think my favorite thing to do right now um, with my kids and what I probably use most is water. And so that's for fishing and hunting ducks in particular. You know, here in Montana, we have access up to the high water mark along all of our rivers and streams. And so I can float down, find a spot where some birds are hanging out, get up on the bank, and then wait for them to come back. And, you know, that's pretty darn special and then we fish a lot so i would say that and then i think you now something i grew up doing the hunting and fishing something that's brand new to me is uh, uh i'm gonna start to get into squirrel hunting which is like the craziest thing for me to even talk about but because i didn't grow up that way you know we grew up chasing big animals like elk and deer uh, hunted a lot of birds pheasants and uh ducks but um i shot my first squirrel in the boundary waters this last fall a uh, red squirrel it wasn't the biggest squirrel in the world uh, we shot this uh, red squirrel and uh, cooked him over the fire that night and i know everything tastes better when you're in the woods but it was delicious um and it's something i can do with my kids too right we can go for an afternoon and it really doesn't take uh, that much to do so i think squirrel hunting is going to be my next uh, big foray into the outdoor uh, pursuits no, that's pretty cool. That's something I kind of want to get back into and do a little bit more of. I can't even tell you the last time I ate a squirrel. It's one of them things that my buddy's mom used to, we used to go squirrel hunting with his dad and his mom would cook him up and make like a, a squirrel gravy and it'd be biscuits mm -hmm. and gravy with squirrels. It was amazing. And I, I still kind of remember that. And it's like, you know, however many years ago, probably 20 something years ago. And it's still one of those things that just sticks in your mind. And I kind of want to get my kids into doing something like that, too. And what a better way, right? Something small, something easy. There's a ton of them out there. And, you know, you've got them everywhere on all your public lands. So why not go after them? Super universal. The only thing I would say is that uh, somehow they know when you're hunting them. Because, like, I've grown <laughs> up, like, hunting big game, right? And those squirrels are right on your shoulder. And they're yakking. They're like, you're in the woods. And they're yelling at you. But they don't do that when you're hunting them. They, you know, they see you coming. As, I don't know if it's like your demeanor. You're looking at them with you know more intense predator eyes. But they run and scatter. There's no more of that chatter anymore. You know, <laughs> so it's like it's pretty interesting. At least the dynamics, which I think I'm looking forward to exploring more. It makes it yeah, it definitely makes it tougher. But do do you actually use like a squirrel call or anything like that then? No, tell me more. So if you start agitating them with a squirrel call. The next thing you know, they're going to start puffing up their tail. They're going to start twitching it, and they'll chatter back. So it's one of those okay. things to where you really want to do that, and you start barking back, and they'll think there's another squirrel in the area. So just kind of lay up next to a tree or something, kind of like you're turkey hunting, and just start chattering and get them really, really ticked off. And next thing you know, you'll have about four or five of them present themselves. Now, is this like is this an actual like wooden call, or is this just like you making noise with your mouth? Uh, actually, um, it's, it's a call that you actually hit. It's got like a, it'd be like a, like a turkey gobble type thing. Okay. If you're not doing okay. it with the diaphragm, you know, the thing you hold in your hand and you shake it and it, it'd yeah, be yeah, like yeah. that. The best okay. one I've ever heard, I, I, 
don't know if the guy's still even business, but it was like an only Illinois or something like that. The guy made them. They were wooden calls and it had like a little hand stamp on it. And that's the one my dad had. It, and it was the most realistic call I've ever heard. That's I've bought, awesome. I've bought many since then and they don't sound quite like it. Now, I do know that um, Hank Shaw had a buddy on that had a guy, I believe, in Kentucky or Missouri make him a custom call, and he'll still okay. actually he'll make you one if you uh, contact him and reach out to him. So, Dude, I might and, have to get on that. Yeah, it's definitely something to look into, but it's, it's, it's one of those things that, yes, if you're hunting them, after about the first squirrel that you shoot, all of a sudden the rest of them go silent and they're up the tree. So, yeah, it's, it'll, it'll change the game. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for that hot tip. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely something I kind of want to get back into. My kids are still a little bit too young to be doing that, but it's one of those things I remember going out and doing. And then once I got a little bit older, my dad it was a pretty big upland hunter. And it's one of those things that I definitely, I don't do enough of that. Um, it's something I kind of want to get back into, and hopefully I can here within the next few years and get my kids involved in it too. Cool. Well, good yeah. luck. How old are your kids? I've got a four-year-old, a two-year-old, soon to be three-year-old, and a six, seven-month-old child. So, quite Holy the cow. Yeah. You're in the sweet. <laughs> you're in the you're in the craziness. Well, I'll tell you, as from a father to a father, like the older they get, the more mobile they get, and the more fun it becomes. So, uh, enjoy kind of your time with them now, but know that it gets better as well. Oh yeah. It's one of them things I tried. I mean, I bought, like I bought the backpack so I can carry, lug them around and I'm yep. pretty sure I'm going to dual carry this year and carry the youngest one on the front and like a Boba type thing in the backpack, um, either an Osprey or a Kelty on my back with the other one. And, that and way so there's your, there's your elk, like elk hunting, like training right there. I mean, like right. just be carrying, <laughs> doing the double dude. <laughs> yep. So I'll maybe even be doing the hike to hunt challenge, carrying two kids, and that'll be there. It is. So I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yep. All right, man. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for coming on and sharing what you what you know. And if somebody wants to get a hold of BHA or anything like that, or join one more time, where can they look? Yeah, it's just backcountryhunters.org. Um, and that we still care about the anglers, but it made it too long. But it's just backcountryhunters.org. Or just find us on social media and like just put in backcountry hunters and anglers. And you'll find uh, some of our main pages and also find a bunch of our state and provincial pages as well. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks. Thank you, man. Great opportunity. And as always, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Leave a review, thumbs up, or whatever else you can do. And you can also visit us at publiclychallenged.com, publiclychallengedpodcast.com, and you can find us on Instagram at publicly underscore challenged. And thanks again for listening. legendary shows in the outdoors is on waypoint tv don't miss primo's truth about hunting wednesday nights at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment you're listening to the waypoint podcast network brought to you in part by hunt stand the number one hunting and land management app